everyone. It's your favorite polygamy podcaster and public historian, Lindsay Hanson Park here, thanking you for listening to the Year of Polygamy podcast and for supporting the podcast. This series might be coming to a close soon, but I have some amazing projects coming up that will ensure quality educational listening for years to come. If you haven't supported the podcast yet, please consider a donation at yearofpolygamy.com or become a monthly subscriber. Years after the series ends, we hope to maintain this project and keep the content alive and accessible, and your donation will go directly to support those goals. Please consider a donation and consider sharing this podcast with friends or family. The history of Mormon polygamy is pervasive and affects us more than we know. It's important, so important that we continue the conversations had before us and keep the discussion going. Thanks again for being part of that, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you the final episode in the year of polygamy series. Now, this episode was actually recorded live at Written Vision in Provo, Utah on June 27th, 2015. But because of some of the audio, I don't know if you're like me, I don't like listening to live audio the same. And one of our mics failed, so it's not great. I will be hosting that episode along with this one. So you can hear the actual live recording. But for those who don't like the live audio, you can listen to it here with clean audio re-recorded. Before I get into the episode, I feel like I really need to thank a lot of people. So bear with me while I do that. I really want to thank John Larson and Zilpha Larson for teaching me the ropes on how to podcast. Zilpha was there teaching me how to edit a few years ago and John came over to my house and actually set up my equipment. So I want to thank them and Whitefields Education for supporting me. I want to thank Corey Howard and Grace Poole for their endless support. They've helped me out a lot with this series. Joe Geisner as well. I wouldn't have had a lot of this great history without him. The support of John DeLynn, Kate Kelly, Lisa Butterworth, Sarah Burlingame, Misha McGregs, Sarah Hanks, Carolyn Pearson, Teresa Edmonds, and Alice Roberts. Uh, Mark Pugsley for representing me as my lawyer, Holly Alden for being there to chat when I need it, Adam Groves and Jake Spurlock for helping me with tech support behind the scenes, Brad Kramer for hosting the final episode at Written Vision. That was fantastic, and I really appreciate that. Go and support them and buy their books. Gerilyn Poole, Emily, and Eric Haltzvet for the web design help. And of course, my wonderful supportive husband, Dallin Park, and my family, for whom none of this could happen. Dallin has been endlessly supportive of this project, and I love him so much for it. And I also want to thank the many, many Mormon historians that came before me to make this project possible. I would not be where I am in this project without the amazing historical research. And I think it's always important to look back at those who came before us and laid the groundwork for us. And we have a lot of rich history in Mormonism, and we have the Mormon historians to thank for doing that. Also, an announcement before we get started. A lot of people are anxious about what is going to happen next. People are saying, we're going to miss your voice. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to podcast, but I am going to take a break from Mormon 
history for just a little while. I need to sort of detox from this project. It's taken a heavy toll on me and my family. So I have other projects in the works. I'm going to announce both of them tonight and then uh, hopefully you'll support them. And if you don't, that's okay as well. They're both a little bit different. So as far as Mormon Mormonism goes, I'm going to be starting a series on January in January 2016 with Misha McGriggs on the history of race in the church, sort of along the lines of what we're doing with this podcast. But that's going to be in January. And like I said, I need a break from talking about Mormonism for a while. So until then, my next podcast series that I'm going to launch is called The Story of Woman Podcast. You can go to storyofwoman.org to check that out. It's really ambitious, probably naively so, but it gives me a time, a chance to sort of talk about things other than Mormonism. We're going to start back with the actual creation of the universe and, um, single-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms and talk about women. And we're going to talk about what it means to be a woman. What is woman? What is gender? All of those things throughout the history of women, ancient women's history to contemporary women's history. So when I get tired of talking about the heavy, dark things in Mormonism, I can always talk about ancient women in Samaria or something like that. So uh, that will be at storyofwoman.org. And it the episodes so far are really, really great. So I hope that you'll support that. Also, um, just want to put one more shout out for Sunstone. If you've never been to Sunstone before, I have a lot of new people listening to this podcast that have never heard of Sunstone. Every year, Sunstone, which is a magazine publication of independent Mormon thought and scholarship, they host a symposium every year in Salt Lake City. It's a big deal. They do it at the U. And this, this year in 2015, it's July 30th through August 1st at the University of Utah. So go uh, sign up at sunstone.org. We're going to all be there. All the people that have been at this podcast and more, uh, don't be intimidated. You'll go find your people there. Now, when I did this live, I asked everyone in the audience how many people were children of pioneers. And of course, the majority of the audience raised their hand, but inevitably, a lot of people in Mormonism and outside of Mormonism are not children of pioneers. And the reason why I asked this is because I think that it sort of represents this tension in Mormonism, this tension for moving from an old church, an old frontier church, to a modern global church, and how we define pioneers. And the church has really struggled with this, right? The LDS church has. I think that it's important to tell you when we're talking about this podcast that I am a child of a pioneer, but I recognize that not everybody has a Utah Mormon experience like mine. And so um, I hope that in telling these stories, you can still sort of relate to my experience having such a rich history of pioneers in my ancestry. It's not just a rich history in my ancestry. It was a huge part of my identity. I think I've talked about this before, but growing up, my mother had two outfits in her closet aside from her regular street clothes. One was a dress of a replica of Betsy Ross, and the other one was of a pioneer woman. The reason why she had these is she was a public historian. My mom would go around to school assemblies, to youth conferences, to Relief Society dinners, uh, to Daughters of the Utah Pioneer dressed as Betsy Ross or a pioneer woman and tell the history of women. She would tell the stories of women. 
And I grew up accompanying her. I really liked it. She made us pioneer outfits as well, her children. And so we would follow her around to these, you know, presentations and help teach kids how to churn butter and how to uh, do the stick pull. And that was my upbringing. And that was the sort of history, Mormon history I got. Of course, these stories were all faith promoting. It was sort of the, you know, legacy church movie pioneer version where there was a formula to the story where there was a great struggle, a great sacrifice, some tears, you know, the oxen and the wagon were stuck in the mud and the baby was dying and buried in the snow. But through the faith of of the pioneer ancestors, all was well, and they were able to make it to Salt Lake City. Those kind of stories, right? Anyone that has pioneer ancestors are familiar with these stories. Those were the stories I grew up on, and they became really powerful and really important in the narrative of my identity. So whenever I struggled with something, whenever I had challenges in my life, I would think back on these narratives, and they became sort of a metaphor to translate to the things I was going through. I would say to myself, really, Lindsay, like you're worried about doing your test? Well, have you ever had to wrap your feet in cloth from your petticoat and walk across the plains? No, you can do this. You know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of narratives I grew up on. So, um, pioneer stories have really shaped my identity, which I think can explain a lot of why I'm so dedicated to this. And I think they shape a lot of the Utah Mormon church. And like I said, the church is struggling with how to deal with this because the church is a global church and pioneers in the Mormon church is such a broad thing. There are many kinds of pioneers now. But I want to tell some pioneer histories here as my last episode. Um, but not your typical pioneer stories. I want to tell stories like mine. Uh, tell stories of people who are children of pioneers. The first one I want to talk about is a woman named Zola Browns Jeffs Hodson. Now, you might know of Zola's family. Zola was born in Cardston, Canada in 1911, about the same time my, my grandparents were born. She was actually born to Ziny Young Card and Hugh B. Brown. Her Apostle Hugh B. Brown was her father. And actually, her great-grandfather was Brigham Young. So if you know anything about signature books, they have, they have this... Um, story that I will link to on their site called the Four Zinas. And of course, Brigham was married to Zina Diantha and she had a daughter Zina and she had a daughter Zina. And of course she had Zola. So Zola has all this polygamy history in her ancestry and her grandparents would have been polygamists. They helped found Cardston Canada. Card is in her name. And her father was Apostle Hubie Brown. So they live in Canada for the majority of her young life. And when Zola was 14, her family moves to Provo. It's there that she starts on her own Utah Mormon upbringing. She goes to BYU. She attends Quish Beauty College. And it's there she finds and marries a man. Well, she fought, she meets a man and falls in love with him. And his name was Rulin Jeffs. Rulin was born in Salt Lake City on December 6th, 1909. And he was the son of first-generation fundamentalist David William Ward Jeffs and his wife, his plural wife, Nettie Lenora Timson. Now, of course, if you're paying attention with the series, Timson and Jeffs are, of course, fundamentalist names that we all know. David Jeffs 
lived his polygamous life mostly in secret. And it's said that Rulin spent the first two years of his life under the pseudonym Rulin Jennings. And he was largely unaware of his own father's polygamous lifestyle. Rulin Jeffs was raised in the mainstream LDS church. His father didn't even introduce him to the fundamentalist teachings until 1938 at David Jeff's own birthday dinner. And here David gives a copy of Joseph W. Musser's Truth Magazine to his son. Rulin gets this and he's upset. He uh, is upset about the lies. He's upset about the secrets. He's upset because, you know, that in the 30s, the church is, the LDS church is really trying to move away from Mormon fundamentalism. And here is his own father, not only as a fundamentalist, but trying to get uh, Rulin to believe in fundamentalism. So he has a falling out with his father. He decides to serve a mission to Europe. He actually goes on a mission to the British Isles. It's the same mission that Gordon B. Hinckley would, would get called to just a year after Rulin. They miss each other by year, although they did attend the same high school in different grades. Um, Rulin Jeffs is on the mission and uh, Cleon Skousen is his companion. And you can see the minute meetings where Cleon Skousen talks about Rulin Jeffs and their mission companions. And Rulin is over there trying as hard as he can. And he's actually saving up all of his money because he has big plans. As soon as he gets off his mission, as soon as his mission term is up, he plans to tour the European countryside like some of the young boys did while they were over there. So he does this, and when his release date comes up, his mission president, who happened to be President James H. Douglas, asks Rulin Jeffs to stay a little bit longer and use the money that he had saved. Rulin is conflicted about this, but decides to do it. He feels pressured into doing it. So he uses that money he saved to tour the countryside and serves a longer term on his mission. The term extends longer than he wants, and he actually ends up being in debt to his mission president, and his mission president demands that he set up a payment plan to pay him back. This really sours things for Rulin Jeffs. And when he returns home and he meets Zola and they fall in love, um, he has this sort of thorn in his side about his mission experience. It was a bitter experience for him. But he enjoys his connections to Apostle Hubie Brown, who would be his father-in-law. He's still very bitter about his mission experience, and he gets to see now these apostles, these LDS apostles firsthand, and he sees them as men, and he sees them flawed. So as all of this is happening, Rulin Jeff starts to work on a reconciliation with his polygamous father, David. David begins stopping by for Sunday evening dinners with Rulin and Zola. And in spite of Rulin's loathing of the practice, he starts to slowly absorb what his father is saying. Rulin knows the LDS church is flawed. He's seen it. He saw it on his mission. He saw his mission present that he really looked up to take advantage of him. And he sees his father-in-law and all of his father-in-law's friends as human beings that are messed up. As his father David is telling him things, he thinks, oh, well, the LDS church is flawed. And maybe this is why. Because... Like my father is saying, the LDS church has turned away from the true principle of plural marriage. Maybe they are out of order. That makes a whole lot of sense with my experiences. It wasn't long before Rulin begins to preach plural marriage to Zola. And again, Zola would not be unfamiliar with the practice since the majority of her friends that she grew up with in Cardston, Canada would have been children of polygamists or connected to polygamy somehow. And of course, 
Zola has polygamous grandparents and polygamous great-grandparents, Brigham Young. So all of this is going on in the background when Zola and Rulin have their first child and they decide to move into their first house. It's a really exciting time for them and they're building it. But Rulin starts to do something weird. He starts to dig out a basement in the home and he says he's doing this to prepare for more wives. Zola begins to have increased anxiety about her husband's enthusiasm. And I can imagine the struggle that she would have felt caught between an old doctrine that her parents and her grandparents and her great-grandparents had once fervently adhered to and believed in, and the LDS church's new position on polygamy that her father was now trying to enforce. As the daughter of this beloved apostle, her behavior would have been under increased scrutiny to those around her as well. The sad thing is, Rulin begins to punish Zola. He punishes her because she's not as receptive to this fundamentalist teachings as he would like. It's said that he starts being cold to her, he stops sleeping with her, and the story goes that he spent about 15 nights away from her not sleeping in bed. And Zola is getting more and more depressed and forlorn and feeling rejected. And she's laying there in bed one night when Ruin comes in in the middle of the night and slips quietly into bed with her. And Zola turns around to be embraced by her husband. And Ruin sits up, runs, and turns on the light. And he tells her that he had just been in the mountains and he had a vision of the woman he was going to marry. And that woman was a young girl from Provo that worked with him in the where he worked. Zola, of course, gets upset. She starts crying. She says, you must not love me anymore, Rulin. You've been so cold and cruel to me. It's clear that you don't want me. And Rulin says something kind of really cold and cruel to her. He says, you're saying I don't want you, and you're saying that I've been cold and cruel to you. Well, that will come to pass unless you accept these new arrangements then I won't want you, and I will be cruel and cold. According to the divorce papers and court records of 1945, Zola really wrestles with this dilemma. She was a young mother in a young marriage to a man she loved. She felt loyalty to the LDS Church and to her father. But the court records say this, quote, She was so worried and upset that she cried almost day and night that her milk dried up so she was no longer able to nurse her baby, end quote. Enacting the law of Sarah, meaning he had at least given his wife a heads up, he marries his plural wife in secret. On April 14, 1941, two weeks after Zola divorces him, Ruland Jeffs was excommunicated from the LDS church. At this point, he doesn't even bother to attend his church trial, and he moves into a house on Lincoln Street in Salt Lake City, Utah, which became sort of the center for polygamous activity. He would go on to say, quote, For the first time I say I would put God's work before anything else in my life. I know where I am and where I am going, end quote. Zola would go on to remarry Waldo Hodson, and she would do her best to put this history behind her. In fact, there are hardly any existing records that discuss her marriage with Ruland Jeffs. She would raise her children apart from him in Southern California, and her children grew up to be devout LDS Mormons. As for Ruland, he would go to take on anywhere between 19 to 95 wives, 
become the prophet, seer, and king of the new church and organize what we now know as the fundamentalist, the fundamental Latter-day Saints or FLDS and start the one man rule to where he sort of becomes a godlike status in this church. It's said he died a raging alcoholic, cut off by most of his family after marrying younger and younger girls, and reportedly was poisoned by his own son, Warren Jeffs. Zola represents to me a symbol of the LDS Church's struggle to amputate the doctrine of plural marriage from its history and theology. Her story carries the pain and dilemma of plural marriage, plus the shame of a very intimate connection to it. Similar to the history of the LDS movement, if you think about it. She would raise her children, most in their late 50s and 60s today, to be LDS monogamous. To remember the connections of her distinguished fathers and siblings and to quietly omit the other side of her life. This shame and this secrecy and this forgetful memory, that is the history of the modern LDS church. It's the legacy our leaders have left with us. This is the transition from Brigham's church to Thomas Monson's. And behind it are all the faceless, nameless women who paved the road for that transition. Women like Zola. In some ways, Zola was a casualty of that change. And in other ways, she was a survivor. This is where the story of modern LDS women come into play. Two Mormon fundamentalists who worship our same Mormon heavenly parents, modern LDS women are a casualty of politics and policy, right? We are the ones, it's really sad because our church is out of order and our prophets are leading us astray. And to many LDS women, we are not casualties, we are survivors, right? We escaped this practice. We're not wearing prairie dresses in Colorado City. We got out of this. We survived. And yet to some, to both of us, both and all groups, we're continued victims of the practice. I want to tell you some more stories of children of pioneers. Some of the details have been changed to protect the identities of these people. Alyssa Pratt was only 19 when her husband of just six months passed away in a motorcycle accident. I can't imagine this. I can't imagine being married at 19 for six months and having six months of your like honeymoon bliss and then having your husband pass away so tragically. As a young newlywed, she was heartbroken at the tragic and very sudden passing of her husband, Josh. Within two weeks, she met Mike and was able to heal a little bit from the pain of her husband's first passing. Soon, Mike and Alyssa were engaged. Mike had recently returned from a mission, and his goal was to take his new bride to the temple. Now, Alyssa was in this dilemma. She was devoted to her first husband in his memory, but she finds happiness and hope in Mike. And Mike really wants a temple marriage. He's struggling with the idea that Alyssa is already spoken for in the next life. Because of Alyssa's first sealing to her husband in the LDS church, both he and Alyssa were heart heartbroken to learn that their wedding would not be a temple marriage. They tried to petition through several outlets, but with no success. Mike's homeward and several high school acquaintances speculated as people do, 
on why he couldn't marry the way that he wanted. Mike, of course, was gossip, gossiped about. His, his parents were gossiped about. Everyone assumed that the reason why Mike and Alyssa couldn't get married in the temple was because they had had sex before marriage, which they didn't. Let me tell you another story. This is a story that's super bizarre, and I've struggled with how to tell this story because it's so unbelievable. But I have um, heard the story firsthand. This story is about Janelle Steed. She was six years old when she was promised to the prophet Warren Jeffs. She grew up knowing she would be his. And her sister had actually married Warren's brother. And her older sister would joke with her about what kind of husband Warren would be to her all her whole life. So she had always prepared for this and always expected it. She planned for a life of being married but single, as she says. Warren was in prison right before marrying age, but Janelle was told she would have to wait until he was released. And, of course, we all know Warren Jess is never getting released. So Janelle was separated from her parents and put in a home in a secret location in Nevada so Warren Jeffs' plural wives could prepare her. Early on, things start getting confusing to her. At the dinner table, for example, she would sit there every night at dinner and people would call her Judas. They would only call her Judas at dinner. And it was really strange. And when she would say, why are you calling me that? Why are you doing this? Why are you serving me last and calling me Judas? They would look at her with a blank stare and not explain anything. Outside the her door of her bedroom each morning was left a different pair of shoes. It was really confusing to her. So she would hold up the shoes and say to one of the plural wives of Warren Jeffs, Who's, whose shoes are these? Where did they come from? And the woman would look at her and say, I don't know what you're talking about, and turn her back and take off running, right? Super bizarre. Sometimes when they were talking about the enemies of Warren Jeffs, they would start saying, Janelle, go get us a thumb drive. Go get us a thumb drive for the computer. It didn't take long after what Janelle explains as hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months of this odd behavior, constantly, constantly being harassed, constantly being asked these weird questions with this weird behavior, that she realizes that she was being taught what she calls code. Now, this is a newer practice. No one has reported on this yet. As far as I'm aware, there are only two people that have been taught FLDS code that have escaped the group. It's being said that it's being taught to the United Order group, to higher members of the church. It's a really bizarre behavior. It's not just language. It incorporates, as you can see in those stories, um, symbols and behavior and words. For example, the shoes outside her door meant shoe, go away, go away, shoe. Or the thumb drive meant gum, like a gun, like you drive your thumb into something to, to shoot it. All of this bizarre ha- behavior um, is taught to the elite FLDS, and we're still investigating sort of the nature of this, but it should be really, really concerning because they're teaching it to the kids in mass. As they're separating children from their parents and kicking a lot of the parents out of Colorado City, there are reports, there are alleged reports, reports of taking truckloads of children across state lines to these secret locations, some in Mexico, where they're teaching these kids these warped worldviews by 
I think, abusively teaching them this code so that if they, should they ever be rescued, they cannot communicate with their rescuer. And some of the women that we've helped that have gotten their children back have explained this, that they can't even communicate with their kids. Their kids, um, in the short time, maybe the three years that they've been away from their kids, they can't even communicate with their kids now because their worldview has been so warped by this. If you're confused by this code thing, you're meant to be. It is meant it, to be abusive and gaslighting to these people, but also to be an elite language that only the most righteous are meant to understand. And it's actually a political ploy. Janelle was being held hostage in this home and she was told that the code would stop and she could be a teacher of the code and not have to be a wife of Warren Jeffs if she would turn in her own father and um, confess that he did something so they could kick him out. And of course she wouldn't do that. But after she escaped, her father was corrected and sent away anyway, two weeks after she left. That's another crazy story. Let me tell you some more stories of children of pioneers. Kristen Decker remembers the first time she heard her husband having sex with another woman. Because of circumstances surrounding her family at the time, Kristen was living in close quarters with her newly married sister wife. She was already depressed and suicidal, but since she came from a prominent family and her father, Owen Allred, was a prophet of a group of at least 10,000 saints who identified as the Apostolic United Brethren, Kristen was determined to wear this well and with a smile on her face. Although she had only caught less than a minute of the sounds coming from the room next to her, her mind was recalled to the years of memories when those familiar sounds had belonged to her. But those sounds, the breathing, the laughter, the patterns, those were no longer her private treasures. They were something common and the beginning of the reality she would have to get used to. Brady Greenwell got off his LDS mission and married in the temple. Like all good Mormon boys do, when his wife Hannah found him looking at pornography one day on the family computer, she moved out that evening and later asked for a divorce. He was heartbroken and full of shame, and he entered a treatment program set up by the LDS church, hoping to rid himself of his pornography addiction and to put his family back together. He completed the treatment program, but Hannah was already convinced that he had broken their marriage vows, and she divorced Brady. Brady got counseling for his divorce and realized that his casual viewing of pornography wasn't addictive, but the shame and secrecy of being labeled as an addict increased his usage. Once he came to this realization, he was able to move on to a healthier relationship, and he met a woman named Katie. Katie wanted a temple marriage, so they applied for a sealing cancellation to have his sealing to Hannah in the LDS temple canceled. It was rejected, and Brady was allowed to be sealed to Katie anyway. He is now sealed to two living women. Both Hannah and Katie are resentful, and Hannah is unable to get the righteous priesthood holder she'd always dreamed about, one that is clean from pornography and one that can take her to the temple. She can't do that now because she's already sealed to someone. Brady and Katie, who are happy, are not allowed to have a marriage without the haunting shame of his first marriage with Hannah. Everybody here in this story loses. One last story. 
Michelle Allred had been married eight years to her husband, Alma, when their lives changed forever. The couple had three small children and in their short time had built a construction business up together. Michelle would keep the books and Alma did the contracting. They worked from home until they made enough money to buy an office. The day they opened up their office, the couple also bought their first new car. Things were looking up for the Allred family. They had worked really hard to build their life together and were finally starting to get their feet under them. Within two months of the office grand opening, Alma showed up at home during lunchtime. Michelle had been nursing a sick baby and was really tired from lack of sleep. So when she saw Alma stumble in, she was worried. He looked pale and fragile. She recalls, quote, At first, I thought maybe Alma had gotten the same bug the baby had. He sat down and I poured him a glass of water. It wasn't like him being home during the day at that time was all that unusual. But he just looked so different. I asked him if he was sick and he told me no. It was right then that my stomach dropped. I felt like I had just gotten off a roller coaster. Who is she? I asked. And how much time do we have? That morning, of course, Alma had been approached by the priesthood. They were given the family a calling to take on a new plural wife. This wife happened to be 19-year-old Katie Timpson, a girl that the Allred family knew well because she often babysat their children. Faithfully, but with great difficulty, the Allreds accepted this calling. Michelle often remarks on how hard it is, but how necessary. And this sort of backs up both what Catherine Danes and Paula Kelly Harleen assert, that the majority of polygamous women said of polygamy, quote, it was hard, it nearly killed me, but I knew it was of God. The Allreds now struggle through the principle, armed with faith and a heavy dose of practicality. Michelle works from home and takes care of the kids while the second wife, Katie, is finishing her degree at a local beauty school. And of course, this story is more common than I realized. There's a story just like this in Sanjeev Bhattacharya's book, Secrets and Lives. So to you listening out there, perhaps these stories are foreign to you. If you have any connection to Mormonism, I have my suspicions that they aren't foreign to you. In fact, I imagine that if you're a Mormon woman, you have entertained some form of these narratives in your head at one time or another. It's actually my assertion that every white Mormon woman has to grapple with this thought. And I say every white Mormon woman because it's still really unclear where our sisters of color fit within this doctrine and theology. Since the priesthood restriction and temple ban was lifted post-1904 and, you know, after the Second Manifesto, the LDS Church really never had to try and reconcile how the manifesto and the ban would intersect. The LDS Church is still trying to and will try long since this episode to work through the inherent racism in the culture, theology, and scripture. Black women are left in a really confusing place in this doctrine, somewhere on the border of this theology. Now, black women might let out a sigh of relief, except their relief is couched in an oppression that still excludes them. Other women of color women of native descent, women of island descent, who we call Lamanite women, do they have a better hope? Their place is still confusing too because of the historical record. The LDS church never had to reconcile this doctrine. Is it the most essential doctrine? Do you go to the highest degree? And Wild at the live recording, who um, is a polygamy proponent, has a pamphlet that she's put together of all the quotes before Joseph Fielding Smith, where all the prophets were saying, Celestial marriage was polygamous marriage. And, of course, we know 
that during that time had to be a priesthood ordinance and black people were prohibited from that. And some people of color were sort of worked in there here and there. The jury's still out on all of this, but it's important to remember that just because the temple ban was lifted, this theology is long from being sorted out. This is one of the painful, confusing legacies of polygamy. And the stories that I just mentioned are best case scenarios. We could talk about the criminal abuse and the child labor exploitation that has become culturally and systematically integrated into the Kingston family, the violence of the LeBarons and the Lafferty groups, the strange and dangerous rituals of the Sons of Amun, the increasing insanity of the FLDS United Order, but the series covers all of that. Those two, don't get me wrong, those two are the legacies of polygamy, a legacy the LDS Church chooses to forget as often and as loudly and as quietly as possible. I like to say sometimes that polygamy is a ghost that haunts every Mormon home. And like all ghosts, some ghosts are more active than others. Some ghosts show up at nights when folks are tired and vulnerable and maybe feeling anxious or scared. Sometimes a ghost shows up in the reflection of a woman looking in the mirror, assessing the extra baby weight that she has yet to lose. Sometimes a ghost shows up in the happiest of times when we finally feel like scripture study was successful and family prayer was spiritual and and it was a great family home evening and we're on our way with our family. We're headed towards the celestial kingdom. The ghost of polygamy peeks its head around the corner. Sometimes a ghost watches us over our shoulders, making sure we don't make a mistake, reminding us that we have to be good enough. Because if we aren't, someone else can fill that gap. And sometimes we search for that ghost in the scriptures or in the pause in our prophet's counsel. And sometimes we look in our partner's eyes in his repeated denials that no, 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 no. He never wants to practice polygamy. He promises he would never choose that. But the ghost of polygamy is really a myth. Polygamy is not dead. It is very much a true and living doctrine. It resides in Utah and the American West more than anyone realizes. It is an active and quiet secret living next door to many of us. Polygamous and polygamy is a stone rolling forth from the mountain, crashed and broken into a hundred thousand different shards that have scattered, crunching under the feet of every Mormon foot. From moguls and corporate dynasties to some world's modern inventions like Ultradent or Mountain Coin or computer technology, it's everywhere. When I say it's true and living, I don't mean to say that it exists just within Mormon fundamentalists. It very much lives within the hearts of LDS women. And I like to think that it usually resides in our hearts crammed somewhere between the spaces that faith and fear occupy, sometimes squeezed out by the two in the surface on a dark night. Here's the thing, though. This doctrine is not subtle, regardless of how we've all struggled to cram it away and hide it away and put it on that shelf. Polygamy is full immersion. It soaks us all to the bone, and it permeates all of our consciousness. I don't think I need to explain to a group of Mormon women the little and big ways it invades our lives. And yet, 
It would be unfair of me to say that it's all heartache and sacrifice. I'd like to talk a little bit about the journey and my understanding as I have come to in exploring this topic. When I first started this podcast, I actually listened to episode one, Fanny Alger, and uh, it's a disaster. And I apologize. Not only is it terribly dry and boring, but it's just a disaster. And I, I make this really ridiculous, naive promise on it. I'm like, hey, guys, if you're just listening, um, I know it's hard and everything, but just listen to the whole thing and we're going to get through this and you're going to feel a lot better about it. And then this horrible thing happened. People started messaging me and they were saying, Oh, Lindsay, I'm on episode four and this is really hard and it's really awful, but you promised it would be okay. So everything's going to be okay, right? And it wasn't until I got to the research with Emmeline Wells who helped inspire this. I mean, I love Emmeline Wells. She was a huge um inspiration for this series. She was a big proponent of polygamy and she writes these fierce, scathing um, rebuttals to anti-polygamy legislation and, and critiques. I mean, she was fierce about it. And I thought if Emmeline Wells, who was a smart, intelligent woman, is happy in polygamy, then I need to respect that as a feminist woman. And so I started the series, but it wasn't until I got to Emmeline's journals where she was tormented by the practice. She, Her heart was just ripped into pieces. She was so wildly jealous and sad and unhappy at times. And yet she would go out publicly and she would, you know, say what she needed to say and fight for this. So she had this real tension inside of her, but it wasn't until I read her journals that I thought, what have I done? What have I done? I can't keep that promise I made in the first episode. That's, that was absolutely naive and wrong of me to make. And then I start researching the fundamentalist period and it was just this huge rock that just kept crushing further and further down on me. The Kingstons and the abuse and the things I had to read and hear and the people I've met. It's a sickness. It's this heavy, heavy, rotten sickness. It rots the state that lives around me. And I'll have to admit that I have experienced a series with increasing anxiety and fear. As I started doing this series, women began to show up at my house and call my house in the middle of the night. I had all these strange men contacting me. It was really, really scary. I began to rehearse worst case scenarios um, in my head. Like on the, like it was borderline paranoia. You know, I worried about cars parked outside my house and, and things like that. And, uh, I was actually diagnosed with secondary trauma, a diagnosis which I found both embarrassing and confusing. I began to fear and resent, deeply, deeply resent the pioneer narratives that I had loved so much. The pioneer story was now gross and disgusting. It was full of women marching towards their own doom to their own peril, and to mine. And all of this under the auspices of agency. It was repulsive to me. I looked around at my beautiful state of Utah that I have loved so dearly, and it felt sickening. The air was heavy with disease. My entire identity became confused. 
And like the LDS church, I became engrossed with and organized around the shame of Mormon polygamy. I, I couldn't sleep. I didn't know who I was anymore. If I couldn't have those stories in my head, they had become rotten and corrupted and dirty. Who was I? Then I met Sam Brower. He's the uh, private detective who helped uh, bring the case against Warren Jeffs. He's sort of like this old school cowboy. He packs heat and he walks around in his cowboy hat saying, we're coming to get you. I mean, he's like literally taken a narrative out of a Clint Eastwood movie and uh, put it on the FLDS and when I met him, I started crying. I was like, I'm scared, Sam. I'm so scared that people are contacting me. And he said to me, he like pointed his finger at me and he said, Lindsay, if you're going to do this, you got to toughen up. Okay. You can't be doing this if you can't be tough. And it was sort of that pep talk that helped. And then talking to Sanjeev Bhattacharya, who, um, wrote a book that a lot of fundamentalist women are not happy with. He was telling me, yeah, you know what? When I really started this, I was scared at first too. I had a lot of experiences that were really scary. And then I realized, oh, you know, it's just the culture is so different and the people are so different. They're not dangerous. They're just different. <laughs> Sam and Sanjeev's words, plus a really good ugly cry with my FMH sisters one night, made me realize that I had been internalizing these narratives so much that they had become disempowering to me which was actually the antithesis of the genesis of this series. It was really helpful. Uh, I was internalizing these. These people weren't dangerous. They just needed help. All, you know, I had all these people coming to me, and they weren't going to kill me. They weren't going to hurt me. They needed help. The stories, they just needed their stories to be told, and they wanted someone to tell them. And it was so overwhelming and so strange to me that I internalized it, but I realized I had to do something about it. So I began to try to reclaim my identity and my pioneer narratives again. What I found disempowering and gross about the pioneer history were really just a piece of every human story. I mean, think about it. Things are complicated. Faith is complicated the majority of this story of polygamy can be really gross. There are some hard things. I don't mean to discount that. I mean, really, truly dirged in darkness. But it's the light that you can find, the small glimmers of hope through the suffering that redeems it for me. I began in the last year this practice of de-ritualizing as ritual. I have a lot of things in Mormonism that are really meaningful to me, like singing hymns, for example, or scripture study or prayer and or, you know, bringing casseroles to people. So I decided instead of throwing those rituals out, I was going to deconstruct them. And I don't really mean intellectually. I mean, actually pull the processes apart completely. So, for example, now when I when everyone is singing a Mormon hymn around me, I love it. I love hearing the hymn. But I decide to not sing the Mormon hymn. I actively choose to silence my voice as a symbol. It's a ritual for me as a, as a symbol of mourning for what I have lost and what so many women and men lose to this movement in Mormonism. When people sing hymns, that is my time for mourning. 
And it's actually really empowering. I pray like Liz Hammond says, with my eyes open now instead of shut as a ritual to symbolize a commitment of more fuller awareness that I am making a commitment to look and see the things that I'd always closed my eyes to in the past. But I've learned a lot of things, so many more things. One of the greatest blessings that I've learned from my Mormon fundamentalist friends is to stop fearing them. I learned firsthand that they are no more the other than I am. That many people outside of Mormonism actually see me the same way that I see the FLDS. We're, we're all very similar. There's a reason why people confuse LDS church as being polygamist. The outsiders look at us all this way, and rightly so. We are far more similar than we are different. Mormon fundamentalists are not to be feared. They are meant to be given space to be complex. Just like myself, a Mormon feminist who's always, you know, misunderstood by family and friends in my church community, I want space to be given to me to be complex. We too need to give the same thing to Mormon fundamentalists. I also learned a really great gift from my Mormon fundamentalist friends. Okay, these people have a long history of being rejected by church leadership. Long ago, the institutional church and much of the culture turned its back on them. The LDS church has projected its shame of polygamy onto Mormon fundamentalists. They say, that's not us, that's you. We quietly try to dismiss them. We tell them that they're, they're, they're not us. And if so, we will excommunicate them to show how different we are. And yet, instead of them believing those narratives, believing that they no longer have a place or a claim to Mormonism, Mormon fundamentalists actually believe the opposite. If anything, they believe this makes them have a stronger claim to Mormonism. It's really an interesting quandary if you think about it, but I think so many in the LDS church could learn something from this. They don't let those those 15 dudes down in Salt Lake City tell them if they're Mormon or not. They know better. They know what being Mormon means to them, and they don't let people define it for them. That's a fascinating thing, something that a lot of the LDS Mormons need to learn because we let those guys tell us who we are all the time. We let our war tell us all who we are all the time. There is a long tradition and a long history of other people claiming Mormonism where they stand. There are thousands of kinds of Mormonisms, and the fundamentalists have long since known this. They don't let those guys tell them who they are. <laughs> Referring to Mormon history, people will often say, I know all that stuff, right? Have you ever talked to someone, one of your friends, and you say, hey, did you hear about the story in Mormon history? And your friend will say, yeah, I know all that stuff already. I know all there is to know about Mormon history. I've even talked to some Mormon historians that are like, I know all this stuff in Mormon history. If there's someone that knows it all, it's me. If anyone tells you this, anyone, don't believe them. None of us know the entire picture of these issues. None of us. There is always more to know. There are more journals to uncover, more stories to unearth, more documents to find, millions of hours of humans living their day-to-day -day lives that are unaccounted for. This story is living. It will never be done. Not so long as Mormon polygamy continues to dot the earth. 
it is being lived around us every day. Don't let anyone tell you that they know all this stuff. I don't know all this stuff. The more I dig, the more I find out, and I could dig the rest of my life and still be learning. This series is only a small piece in this, and after the series ends, it will be dated, and there will be so much more of this history to tell, and we shouldn't stop telling these stories. I have loved the stories of pioneers all my life, all my life. They have brought me so much peace and hope and purpose and identity. But they became really complicated by the darkness that follows this practice like a constant cloud of sorrow and corruption. Who were my ancestors then? People that sacrificed for this? For this? How can I find any more peace or power in their stories? Like I said, I felt like they were marching towards pain, towards heartache, and towards sorrow. Every step closer to Zion brought them closer to complicity in the practice that haunts every single Mormon today. How am I supposed to celebrate that? Like I said, over time, I've come to my own resolution with this. Just as the stories of pioneers weren't all heroes and faith-promoting like I grew up, you know, going to youth conferences and talking about, it would be wrong of me to say that my pioneer ancestors' lives were only darkness and shame and brainwashing and complicity. None of us. Not one of us listening out there, not you, not me, have simple lives, and I cannot rob them of their complexity. My ancestors could struggle for heroism in a practice that was wrong and would wound the hearts of so many. They could bring their wagons to those conclusions and call it right and call it from God, and they did. They did that. They marched towards a Zion that is no Zion to me. And even in their darkest grief, it gave them hope and fulfillment and purpose to do so. So what am I supposed to do with that narrative? The stories in my head will always revert back to them. And this is my habit. This is my identity. This is who I am. I've come to realize that their Zion is not my stopping place. They walked and they bled and they starved for this and they stopped their wagons and they made a home in this principle. I am fortunate that I can climb onto the tracks of their legacy, look at their old wagons, touch the cracked and rotting woods with my hands and look at the broken wheels. I can pick up those reins out of the dirt where they left them right here, right now. I pick them up right now. And I get on my wagon and I take it out of this Zion. This is not the right place for me. This is no Zion for me. Brigham did what he did. And now we get to do what we do. We can take our wagons of our ancestors and we take them somewhere else. And if you don't have a wagon from an ancestor, even better, you get in your new wagon and you take it somewhere else. The pioneers brought them here and they laid them down. We pick them up 
and we take our wagons into the hope of a better Zion. One that doesn't break the hearts of women and call it good and call it consecration. It doesn't have to be here. No longer. So what does this mean? Where do you take your wagons? Where should your wagons go? If you've listened to anything in this series, I hope you've learned one thing, that no one on this earth or in heaven above should tell you where to take your wagons. That faith we've seen, that faith in others is flawed. And just like those on the handcart trek or down in Cedar City, too much harm can happen when we follow that old paradigm. My ancestor was Dudley Levitt. He felt like he was following God and his leaders when he was participating in Mountain Meadows Massacre. That is a flawed paradigm. That is a paradigm that has given us inherited racism, inherited patriarchal misogyny, and it is a flawed paradigm. No one but you can tell you where to take your wagons. No one but you can decide what Zion is for you or what building it in your heart will entail. Only you can stop and say, this is the right place. So all of you, this is my challenge today. After listening to this, you pack up the things you've learned today. You pack up the things that you've heard in this series. You put them in your wagons and you go to the call that best moves you and you be not afraid. May we all move towards the holiest history we can muster. And may we live our lives with an equal yearning. I'm going to end with Carolyn Pearson's beautiful poem about pioneers. And I want to thank you so, so much for listening to this series. I mean it. I, if I'm going to get emotional, it's about this. I feel like you're my friends. You have been willing to walk this journey with me, which is what we do as Mormons, right? We're a collective body of saints. And regardless of where you stand on the Mormon spectrum or whether you identify as Mormon or not or whether you've never identified as Mormonism, we've walked this journey together and we're going to keep on walking this journey. And I really appreciate you putting your faith and trust in me, however misguided that was. And I apologize that I couldn't fulfill my promise. But I do wish you the best as you take, as you take your wagons elsewhere. Thanks. Pioneers. My people were Mormon pioneers. Is the blood still good? Truth flew by like a dove and dropped a feather in the West. Where truth flies, you follow if you are a pioneer. I have searched the skies and now and then another feather has fallen. I have packed the hand card again, packed it with the precious things and thrown away the rest. I will sing by the fires out there on that uncharted ground where I am my own captain of tens, where I blow the bugle, bring myself to morning prayer, map out the miles, and never know where or when or if at all I will finally say this is the place. I face the plains on a good day for walking. The sun rises and the mist clears. I will be all right. 
my people were Mormon pioneers.